you would, turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We've been looking uh, for some time. You might want to resync the computer. There's a different slide, Jeffrey. You'll want to resync the computer for a different slide, or take that one down because we're not there today. Um, for several weeks, we've dealt with John three sixteen, uh, seeing the the varied uh, implications of this one. And grand verse. We've concerned ourselves with the love of God and what that means. It is a conception that's far greater than just sentimentality. Uh, we have also looked at the narrowing reality of John 3.16, uh, that it promises life not to everyone, but to those who call upon the name of the Lord. And we've also looked at the uh, amazing reality two weeks ago of that which was given for our salvation. That there, uh, the only Son, the only begotten Son, depending upon your translation, the only One who eternally had a relationship and has a relationship at this very moment, uh, the relationship of sonship to the Father, it was He who took on human flesh and, and ultimately was given on our account for our salvation. Uh, this Jesus, uh, a man full of grace and truth, truly God, truly man, truly given for those who would believe upon His name. Well, in verse 18 today, John puts before us a sobering truth, a sobering reality about the importance of belief upon the Lord Jesus Christ. He reminds us that this is not just some cute story that we've been listening to from verse 1 of chapter 3 in the direct discourse of Nicodemus and Jesus, but here is held before us history that reminds us of the imperative of our belief. Beloved, this morning, eternal joy, everlasting life, or everlasting destruction and damnation depend upon one reality, and that is belief on the Lord Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. So if you would this morning stand as we read verses 16 through 21. John writing here under the inspiration of the Spirit of Almighty God, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. These are God's words to you and I today, beloved. Would you pray with me? 
Father, we come before you today so thankful for these words, so thankful for the grace of knowing you, so thankful for the reality that you have taken us who were once blinded in our trespasses and sins, feasting on the things of this world, and you have transferred us into your kingdom. You have opened our eyes and shown us the wonders of Christ. Father, if there's one here today that has never believed on You truly, though they might call themselves a Christian, if they have never turned to You in repentance and faith, would You, by Your grace and Your grace alone, regenerate their cold hearts and make them alive unto Christ. And for those of us who are gathered here today, might we rejoice in the reality that we find ourselves believing by grace alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What John is doing for us this morning is he's drawing down on what is right here at the very end of the direct discourse between Jesus and Nicodemus when Jesus says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. The curse of the law of God, like a venomous serpent, had laid its fangs, has laid its fangs into all of humanity. Friends, every one of us is born a sinner separated from a holy God. In Adam, we all have received just condemnation. And there is no cure except to look upon Christ. There is no hope apart from Him. And, and here John states it emphatically. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. Isn't that a wonderful truth this morning? That whoever believes upon Christ is this morning not condemned. We don't need to tabulate up our sin and then our good works and see which one comes out longer. Uh, one, we would never get those lists right. I promise you, we would be erroneous eternal accountants we would put more things in the good category, being hopeful in our own dead works, and we would negate a full understanding of what our sin really is before a holy God. We don't need to worry about that. We need to understand, though, fully that whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Here in this one verse, there are three main parts that are described. Succinctly, they are the chief sin that is made clear, and that is the sin of unbelief. Secondly, the punishment for that sin, and that is condemnation. And third, the immediate correlation between those two things, the sin of unbelief and condemnation, and that immediate correlation is that whoever does not believe is already condemned before the bar of God. So let us come this morning, beloved, and consider the sin of unbelief. Now, I think unbelief is so common that we barely even think about it anymore. Uh, we, it barely registers. It's so common that we consider it normal. But I would contend with you this morning that it is the worst deformity, it is the worst malady that faces the human race. Uh, we have psychologists today that categorize different neuroses of the human psyche. Uh, and, and they put them into manuals, the DSM, I don't know what we're on now, five maybe? 
Five? Get with Drew after service. He'll line you out on what, what, where we're at in that. And I'm, I'm thankful. Um, but friends, nothing plagues the human race like unbelief. Nothing more distorts our understanding of the world around us. Nothing so undermines our academic pursuits theologically and otherwise. Nothing so destroys our family. Nothing so hampers our relationship. Nothing so disturbs our soul. Nothing so imperils our nation. Nothing so enslaves us as this one sin, the chief neuroses of the human race, that of unbelief. And friends, we need to understand that this is a universal reality outside of the grace of God. And this sin is, has two components, both the negative and the positive. Uh, the negative reality of, this, of the sin of unbelief it comes in the lives of those who have never heard the gospel. Uh, they, they have no belief in Christ because they have never heard uh, His gospel proclaimed. They have never heard the glorious reality that we are fallen sinners, that we have rebelled against a holy God, but that that holy and just God, the Creator of all things in the fullness of time, sent His only Son, the One who eternally dwelt in perfect relationship inside the Trinity, the second member of the Trinity, who took on human flesh. He came and dwelt among us, left glory to take on the weakness of infancy. And He grew in wisdom and favor and stature with both God and man. He lived perfectly in our place that all who would call upon His name and turn to Him in repentance and faith would never see condemnation but would have eternal life. They've never heard that. And so they don't believe. And so there is the negative side of unbelief, but there is also the positive sin of unbelief, and, and many in our culture today live in this positive expression, this full force rejection of the gospel in their unbelief. They've heard the gospel, yet they have rejected it. They have heard the call to repent and believe, and yet they have walked away unchanged. Friends, the God of eternity took on human form and the nature that we experience to call us to repentance and yet we in our foolishness apart from the grace of God will not come to Him but continually run to feast upon the world. Friends, I, I can't tell you the number of things this morning that the church is being used for. Uh, it is a common mark of fallen humanity to come to the gospel and think in some respect, well, that's a very useful instrument. Uh, we can hijack the church and we'll interject our program. We'll interject our priorities. We'll interject our politics. We'll interject what we think humanity needs and we'll go on declaring whatever we think to be good the gospel. Friends, that's a wholesale rejection of the gospel. And I promise you it happens in many places this very morning. And if we're not careful, we'll do the same thing. We will hear the Gospel that we are sinners in need of grace and sovereign grace alone. And when we hear that, we will think, okay, but I have some qualifications. And there is nothing more heinous than unbelief in that fashion. 
than hearing the plain, undiluted truth that you are in uh, sin, that you are a sinner, and that your only hope is that God would send a Messiah, and that that Messiah has come in the person and the work of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and to, in respect, reject that reality. So we see the sin of unbelief. But we also must consider the punishment of unbelief, and that punishment here clearly stated is condemnation. And the question is, what does that look like? I think that in the minds of most moderns, the condemnation of God is a laughable, cartoonish reality. It's something that a bunch of Puritan-esque people throughout history have dreamt up. It's, it, 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 it's promising the wrath of God as some sort of boogeyman to control humanity. But I, I promise you that the condemnation of God is a terrifying reality. The, the world today goes on under the kindness of God, and, and everyone has room. In our society, well, I can't say everybody, many in our society have room for a God who is kind. Our God is loving. Our God is kind. Our God but would never send anyone to hell. But friends, that's just not so. And, and, and what we have done with, with who God is and His attributes and His identity is we have divided Him and we have taken what we like about Him and rejected what we don't like. But the reality is, friends, that God is angry at those who are outside of Christ every day. The wrath of God abides upon them. Apart from Christ, humanity stands completely in unbelief and in complete uh, deserving of His just punishment. But friends, the reality we need to see is that God's wrath against unholiness and unrighteousness and unbelief is a positive kindness to those who do believe. It is kind, it is loving, that He is righteous and stand opposed to all who would reject His Son. Those who stand condemned in our generation. And some people think, well, if, if He's going to condemn people, why doesn't He just do it immediately? Friends, that's common grace. He, he continues to allow people. When, when He told Adam and Eve that in the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. That, that, I believe, was speaking of a spiritual death that was a reality the moment that they sinned against God. And friends, that's a reality that carries on to this day. But God in His kindness for His redemptive purpose allowed Adam and Eve to live another day. He allowed them to continue to flourish on the earth, and He's allowed humanity to populate the earth. Why? That He might show the goodness of His name among the nations. And all the while, the nations go on rejecting the Gospel at every turn. It's not as though Jesus came in the Gospels in the fullness of time, and then the world said, you know what, we're not following this God anymore. The world has never followed the living God. The world always turns because they're sold under sin and does exactly what their sinful flesh tells them to do. They use what is holy and they profane it and use it for their own means, their own desires. Do you remember the narrative in Daniel chapter 5? Turn with me if you have your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 5. 
Daniel chapter 5. Bible records here, Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple the house of God in Jerusalem, and the kings and his lords, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. They drank wine and praised gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. And look what happens here. And immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Now, if you don't believe that our God has some humor in his expression of holy truths, you've missed this verse. Because what we're about to hear in this narrative is that this king turns into a stinky, nasty mess at the holiness of God. He is trembling before the majesty of God as the hand writes that the Bible here, as God writes on the wall, the Bible records the king's color changed. He went ghost white. And, he, and, and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. Uh, I think the King James Version, if I remember correctly, at one time I had this memorized, uh, says that his knees smoked together. He was, his knees were knocking. And, and ultimately, he is... Uh, he, he is petrified at what he is singing, seeing. He's, uh, he and, and those who are following him living in debauchery and idolatry and here God writes on the wall. And, and we learn later in, in verse 27 if you, if you look down further that, that, that Daniel here comes and interprets that this says, you have been weighed in the balance, balances and found wanting. Friends, the reality is this morning if we come to this narrative and we think, oh, he was just a really bad king. Friends, he is who we all are apart from Christ. We will take everything that is holy, we will profane it, and then we will be astonished when God writes judgment on the wall. The reality is here that, uh, that the living and holy God has sentenced every person, all of us, it could be said outside of Christ, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. God has sentenced every person who has not believed on His Son to eternal destruction. And so we, we then have to consider the immediate relationship between unbelief and condemnation. And that is that the unbeliever, again, is already condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I, I think most people believe that sinners are hell-bound because of some sin that they have committed. Because that they have ultimately tabulated everything up and they're just more bad than good. But friends, the reality is, biblically speaking, everyone has sinned in Adam and we have confirmed that volitionally in our own acts. And the law then has been violated. And so a righteous judge then comes. Here, here's the reality. We could, can you break the law and get away with it? 
Yes, that's called Congress. <laughs> I'm kidding. It was a joke. Never mind. Um, uh, but friends, the, the, the reality is you can break the law and, and never experience condemnation. There has to be a righteous judge that imposes sentence. And here, what John is communicating to you and I is that God has communicated a sentence uh, that has already been rendered. That The judgment of a sinner for all of eternity is the righteous decree of God if he is apart from Christ. Some scoff and say, that God would not really send someone to hell for merely, what if, what if you're a really good person and you just, you just stole one time or you've committed adultery, but, but you're not doing that anymore or, or, or there's some dishonesty in your life, but really you're a good person. Friends, I promise you on the authority of the Word of God that God will punish every sinner who has not believed upon His name. And more than that, uh, we need to have right in our minds that according to the Word of God, God will be present in hell for all of eternity, pouring out His wrath upon the unbeliever continually. God doesn't just exist apart. Some people I've heard say, well, well you don't want to go to hell because that's the one place that God doesn't exist. That's not true. God does exist there. He exists there. In, in His love expresses itself in the form of His wrath eternally but here's the reality God doesn't send a man or a woman to hell merely for breaking a command and that's it no uh, uh, rather he condemns a man because he has had such great compassion that has been described in John three sixteen. for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life and he condemns the man or woman because he has shown this compassion. And instead of turning in repentance and faith, the, heart, the human heart, apart from the graces of God, rejects that gift. Friends, the, the reality of the sinfulness of man is that the Gospel can be declared before the nations. We could, we could fill Congress, and we should, uh, we could fill all of the universities, and we should. Uh, we could fill every K-12 through school, and we should. We could fill every hospital room, every, every municipal office with someone who understands the Gospel lucidly and declares it unequivocally and clearly, and yet men will reject the goodness of that Gospel because their hearts are hard in sin. And it is that reality for which they are sentenced at this very moment to the condemnation of God. Instead of repentance and faith, they are given to unbelief. C.S. Lewis speaks soberly of this reality when I think he rightly says this, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. They despise God. It's not that God has rejected them. It's that lost humanity rejects God apart from His grace. So we need to ask this question to be clear. If everyone who lives in unbelief is condemned already, and that's a weighty judgment, it is, then what is the sin of unbelief? Well, I, I think we have to answer that question by first stating what it is not. 
It is not besetting, the, the besetting sin of continual doubt or struggling with unbelief about particular aspects of the faith. Even after one comes to a saving knowledge of the Gospel, we all struggle with residual effects of unbelief in our life. We all struggle with doubt at some level. You'll remember the Father in Mark chapter 9 crying out, I believe, help me in my unbelief. So it's not merely struggling with doubts. It's also not a rejecting of some component of a historical creed or confession. I think some people would like us to be able to just look at a document and we can check off all the boxes. We're good. That's not what this is talking about. You can struggle with an understanding of articulating the faith and that's what we see in creeds and confessions is the church trying to articulate what the faith once for all delivered to the saints is and we're going to continue to struggle with that because we don't have perfect minds this side of heaven. So you're not guilty of the sin of unbelief if you struggle with doubts. You're not guilty of the sin of unbelief if you reject some, some, some tertiary component of a creed. Rather, the sin of unbelief is the wholesale rejection of the Gospel. The Gospel calls sinful men to come to God on His own terms. The, the Gospel calls us to come before Christ in repentance and faith. And unbelief rejects the call to repent and believe. Unbelief is willing, rather. Um, and, and so you think, oh good, so everyone who says, I believe in Jesus, is acting in belief. No, not at all. In fact, many people will hold on to a caricature of who Christ is, but they're actually going to reject constituent components of Christ that land them, I think, under the condemnation of God. That they will accept Christ in part, but not in the whole. Not in the whole of His biblical representation. One, one helpful way... I think to discern uh, belief from unbelief, I believe it was Dr. Sproul that asked, you have to ask yourself, do I love God um, perfectly? And would any of us say we, we love God, we love Jesus perfectly? And the answer to that is no. And secondly, would we be able to say, well, I, I love God consistently most of the time? And, and in some sense, I think we'd have to be honest to struggle with that. But the third question really gets to the heart of the matter, and that is, do I love, and this is so important, the biblical Jesus, the one portrayed in the Bible, do I love Him at all? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you have reason to praise God this morning because only the heart of a regenerate person will love the biblical Jesus at any time. Now we go on growing in that love for Christ by the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. Uh, but friends, the Christian church has always been beset with people who will profess faith and yet in some sense reject the biblical Christ at the same time. You see, unbelief is willing to accept the righteousness of Christ as long as I get to bring my own righteousness along as well. Unbelief is willing to wear the crown of Christ, but refuses to bear the cross of Christ. Unbelief is willing to accept the promises of Christ, but will not receive the person 
of Christ. And it's why it's so important, it's so vital that we understand. Uh, Two weeks ago when I preached on the road to Chalcedon, I know that many of you probably felt like, woof, this is dry material. And in some respect it is, but it's so important for us to understand that Jesus is one person with two natures and that there is a hypostatic union between the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. Why? Because we are trusting upon His atoning work and that alone as a means by which we will see heaven. We are accepting the fullness of who Christ is. And so is it important that we understand the theology of the faithful church throughout the ages in defining the person of Christ? Yes, because we want to believe upon that Christ and not one of our own making. We can say we believe in Jesus and all the while be living under a self-delusion and under the condemnation of God because we've not really believed on the biblical Christ. Uh, Unbelief also rejects the fruit of belief. Unbelief does not love God. Unbelief will uh, ascribe to covenants. It will will hold up confessions. Unbelief will argue right theology. It will quote the Bible fluently. It will demand right ecclesiology or right ordering in the church. All of the formality can come in unbelief. But at the same time of of quoting the Bible and, and, and espousing what is believed by the individual to be right theology and ascribing to covenants or confessions or uh, having what is considered in the mind of the individual finally the right ecclesiology ultimately will be proven to be fruitless because the unbelieving heart loves all of the accoutrements of the Gospel but doesn't love the Christ of the Gospel. Be careful that you have not an unbelieving heart in you. Ultimately, unbelief will not issue forth in humble love for God and His people. In John chapter 5, if you turn just a few pages over, you'll find these words. You search, this is Jesus speaking, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that, that you do not have the love of God within you. An unbelieving heart is a heart that does not have within it the love of God poured out by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, to the glory of God. So then the question becomes, having unbelief in our minds, unbelief is, is the rejection of Christ, His biblical person, His biblical work, the, the, the triune God in all of His redemptive purposes. It, it's a, 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 a rejection of the love of God. So what is the punishment for the sin of unbelief? In court, there are two phases, and if I had a lawyer here, they would correct me and tell me I'm sure that there are more, more uh, different components to litigation you get a lawyer in a room and they love the one word bifurcation bifurcation means we cut this particular matter into smaller parts and bifurcation by its necessity means more billable hours so if we can have more components of a trial boy that's good right but for the sake of argument from a a layman legally speaking there are two components that we need to concern ourselves with here that i think Uh, ultimately are are described here in verse 18 of John chapter 3. You have the guilt phase, and then you have the punishment phase. The the first question is is about culpability. 
the, the culpa, the, 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 do you have a responsibility? Are, are you under uh, the, 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 the guilt of breaking the law? And so what, what is being pictured here in the fullness of the economy of God as, as John says that, that those who do not believe in the Son of God are condemned already is a man comes before the, God, the, the bar of God and is asked this question, have you ever sinned? Have you ever been dishonest? Have you ever lusted in your heart? Have you ever, and fill in the blank, any biblical imperative? Have, have you crossed the line? And, and the answer for every human being is yes. And so the second question before the bar of God is, have you believed on the only Son of Christ? And the answer, apart from grace, is no. So then that individual stands before the court with no advocate, with no one to plead his case, guilty of the law, bear before the living God, the holy God of all eternity, the omniscient, omnipotent, supreme, impartial, holy judge, renders immediately then his verdict, you are guilty. And here outside of Christ, John is giving us a picture of what it means to believe in the utter depravity of man. And radical depravity, that doctrine doesn't teach that man is as bad as he could be. That's not the import of that doctrine. The, the doctrine teaches that everyone has been so permeated by sin that apart from Christ, we have no hope for redemption. That sin has pervaded every aspect of human life. That, that it has rendered us spiritually incompetent and impotent. And so we stand here under the words of God, under the words of John, condemned already. Friends, we should be most concerned about this judgment than any other judgment. But today, you can't, you'll go home today and you'll find in our court systems are in a really rough spot because they're being used, I think, politically on all sides. Uh, there, there is an erosion of, of justice in our nation. And we've got to pray about that. Now, the reality is you can turn the TV on and you'll hear just a litany of different cases being tried in human courts. What you will not hear is the reality that every person stands condemned before God already because of their sin and willful rejection of His Son. And that should be front page news. That should scare us. The, the reality is that, 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 that human courts can take you and throw you into prison. Human courts can impose sentences. Human courts can take all of your wealth. Human courts can censure you. Human courts can do a lot. But we have found time and time again as Christians that while a human court can render a verdict and throw someone in jail, the God of all the ages can meet that individual in that jail cell and declare him to be righteous before God through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to that individual. That is, God can take an individual convicted under human courts and declare him to be set free and saved for all of eternity through the meritorious works of His Son. The verdict that we should all be concerned with is not the verdict of men, it's the verdict of God. Because here's the reality. The second that someone is condemned in human courts, what happens almost by default? There's going to be an appeal. 
Well, why is there an appeal? There's an appeal because we all know this, this reality. Listen, if you start talking theology, people are going to reject the doctrine of total depravity. They're going to argue against that. Because, we don't, because it, at some level, if we say yes, ultimately sin has pervaded humanity in such a way that we are spiritually incapable of repentance and belief in our own strength, we all ter- have turned astray and run after our own idols. If we agree with that, well, that's saying something about ourselves. And we're a little bit too prideful to do that. But I promise you people will agree with the, the doctrine of total depravity if you ask them this question. Well, do you think a judge should be given unilateral power to declare guilt of you and there be no chance for appeal? Most people would say, well, of course not. There should be a mechanism for appeal. Why? Well, because judges get it wrong sometimes. Human courts are faulty. Ah, you do believe in the radical depravity of man. You do believe that every person falls short of the glory of God. So there's there's appeals to be made. But friends, in light of this text, can I promise you this? God's judgments are right all the time. And there is no appealing His verdict. So when John chapter 3, verse 18 says that apart from Christ, an Islamic man who has been faithful to his wife, who is a really positive member of the community who has has done a lot of good works but has rejected Jesus as the Messiah that man stands condemned already that's a reality and that judgment will not be undone by popular opinion an individual who, who who lives in a Roman Catholic system believing that their good works can be added to the meritorious works of Christ. So we'll take part of Christ's redemptive works, we'll add to it Mary's works, and then we'll slap our works on the back end for good measure. And I'll be, I promise you, I'll be a really good guy. But have you believed upon Christ in a way that you depend upon Him and Him alone for salvation? And if the answer to that question is no, then the the judgment has already been rendered. You are guilty before God because He has given His only Son that believing in Him and in Him alone, you would have eternal life. And if you reject that reality, you are already condemned before God. And so then we have to consider the punishment and this is the second part of this is the second part of the condemnation one is the guilt or innocence and there is guilt here and it's been decided and it's not going to be appealed the second part is the punishment of god and there are two veins of the punishment of god one is what unbelief excludes you from the other is what unbelief includes you under And here are the things, quickly, that unbelief excludes you from. Number one, the pardon of sin. Jesus came to give life and that abundantly. He came to save sinners. He came to pardon. In John chapter 8, verse 24, He says, I I told you, speaking to the Jews, that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. If you reject Christ, you exclude yourself from a pardon for your sin. Secondly, you exclude yourself from the saving works of Christ. J. Grisham Machen would call that the positive 
obedience of Christ as he was on his deathbed, he wrote a note to his friend that there is, he, he was so thankful for the positive obedience of Christ. And his last words in that note were, there's no hope without it. And if you live in unbelief, if you reject the gospel, you are removing yourself from those saving meritorious works. Romans chapter 3 Starting in verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is a wrath-bearing sacrifice, by His blood to be received by faith. If you reject Him, you are acting in disbelief and you are cut off from His saving works. So you are excluded from the pardon of sin, the saving works of Christ. You also, and this is so important that we understand this, you are cutting yourself off from valuing the gospel. You are cutting yourself off from relishing in what God has done through His Son to bring you to glory. Friends, what I want you to understand in this is not somehow that you just go, oh, ho-hum to the gospel. It's that when you reject the gospel, when you hear the gospel, and you turn in unrepentant, unrepentance and walk away just, I don't care, you are, your heart is not static. Your heart is not, well, maybe I'll get to it one day. Your heart is ever-hardening as you live a life in unbelief. Unbelief hardens the human heart. Fools say one day, One day I will repent and believe on the gospel, but for now I'm going to live my life. I promise you that if you live your life apart from Christ, you find yourself on your deathbed, it's not that God can't save you, but it is that you have a very hard and impenitent heart that you have built up over years. And I have some people that will say to me, Jay, yeah, but what about the the thief on the cross? There is one thief. One. And you're going to pin your hopes there? And I don't mean that to, to diminish. I can't remember who it was that said something to this effect. There is one thief that none of us may despair. But there's one that all of us might be warned. If you hear the Gospel today, the... the, the it, it, The gospel is is touted so often in this way. God needs you so desperately. Sarah, he looked down from heaven in triune perfection, enjoying a perfect relationship in himself throughout all of eternity. And he he thought to himself, well, I need Sarah. And, And if she'll just come to me. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that God in His righteousness demands payment for sin and He is such a loving and wise and holy God that He sent His only Son into the world and He's called every human being to repentance and faith. And none of us do that apart from His grace. If you walk away from that reality, again, you're not just somehow static. You are hardening yourself against the gospel. So if, if, you, if you do not believe today You are excluding yourself from the pardon of sin, the saving works of Christ, and the value of the gospel. Your heart grows more cold day by day. Can God save you someday far off? Certainly He can. It's His prerogative and His work. But it's much better to call upon His name today. Finally, and I think most egregiously, what we exclude ourselves from as we live in unbelief is union 
with Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prays, and he prays these words, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory He may grant to you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, isn't that a wonderful thing that Paul has prayed over the church? And if we look, the, 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 the majestic reality of Paul's prayer here is over the past 2,000 years, God has been faithful in the right time and in the right way and for His own glory to confirm and answer this prayer. To fill the hearts of the saints not with an attitude of entertain me, not with an attitude of I want my pet program to be the center of the church, but with a heart and an attitude that says, I desire to know Christ fully, to be united to Him and faithful in Him. So there we have the reality of the things that we're excluded from, the pardon of sin, the saving work of Christ, the value of the gospel, union with Christ. But there is also the reality of what unbelief puts us under. It puts us under a position of being disobedient and dishonoring to God. Some men claim that Jesus was a good man, a good teacher. Friends, nothing is a higher offense than for God to send His only Son into the world and for a human being to say, bravo, He's a good teacher. Nicodemus says that very thing. We know that you're a teacher. Well, the point isn't that He's a teacher, it's that He's God incarnate. And nothing is more heinous before God than to merely pat Jesus on the back as though He's just a little bit better than the rest of us. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning His Son. God has emphatically said, in the Gospel of John, in all of the New Testament, that this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Believe upon Him. And to reject Him in any way is to put yourself in a place of dishonoring the Holy Creator of all of the universe. Secondly, it puts you at odds with the purpose of the universe. Think about that for a minute. Living in unbelief puts you at odds with the entire purpose of the universe. Turn back to John chapter 1 and starting in verse 9. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We, we spoke about the reality that the entire cosmos was created through Christ and for Christ as a, as a theater for Christ's redemptive works. The, the reason that everything is held together at this very moment, and I think when I preached about this, I said the reason this piano is held together this moment, and the reason that the chair you're sitting on is firm and you don't fall to the floor, is because this universe, all of it, 
beginning to end, was created for one purpose, and that is to display the glory of the, uh, of the Son of God in His redeeming work. And to live in unbelief against Christ is to reject the purposes of the universe. Friends, some of you are astonished that we live in a day and age, and I'm going to try and handle this carefully because there are kids in the room, when human beings can reject something that's so biologically obvious about themselves. That they can go mutilate their flesh and, and, and say, well, I'm just doing what my biology is telling me I should do. Friends, that is a reprobate mind that has lived in unbelief contrary to the Gospel for so long that not only are you pushing against the, the, the redemptive purpose of the universe and alienated from that, but you take one step back and you're, you're ostracizing yourself from even the natural uh, purposes of the universe. Friends, that's the state that many are in today. And, and mark it down. When you go into a church and if there's a rainbow flag, unless they tie that to the noetic covenant, run. Because to, to live rejecting the created order that God has put in place is to reject the Gospel and it's to put yourself at odds with His purposes for the universe. And so you put yourself in that place by living in unbelief. And ultimately, living in unbelief afflicts you with the greatest spiritual blindness and darkness, a darkening of your understanding in every area of life. I, I remember some of the older evangelists when I was in college, they, they would teach us that when you go evangelize, the question that you need to ask everyone is, where will you go when you die? Because that's the big issue of the Gospel. Where are you going to wind up in eternity? And, and I think that's a good question, but I want to qualify it. I think we need to ask the question, what will you do while you live? Where do you find rest for your soul? Where do you turn in times of difficulty? Where do you gain understanding about the world around you? You see, when you reject the Gospel, you can have a PhD, you can be Richard Dawkins, you can, you can claim to, to be erudite in a thousand ways, and you very well may be. God, God allows in His common kindness to humanity for people to receive education that benefits humanity in a temporary way, and I'm not negating any of that. I don't want to undermine that because I believe even that is a gift of God. But friends, the individual that is rejecting God has marred everything that he understands about the universe. Everything about the way that the world is created and its intended end and, and, and its purposes, all of those things are marred when we reject the Gospel. Back 2 Corinthians chapter 4, you'll remember Paul saying, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. To live in unbelief puts you in a position where you are dishonoring to God, where you're at odds with the universe, where your thinking is darkened and you're spiritually blinded. And finally, it places you under the eternal curse of God and places you under all of the promised punishment that God has rendered on the day of judgment. One of the glorious realities, and it's one of the things that scares me when Christians say, oh God, the day of judgment's not a big deal. 
Friends, for all of church history until late modernity, the day of judgment is something that, that the church has celebrated, not with, not with contempt for the world, but with longing for the justice of God. And we live in a day where people will claim to know Jesus, but then diminish the reality of the judgment that is to come. A true Christian, when they, are, when they come to conversion, they realize that they're sinful, that they need the forgiveness and mercy of Christ, and that in Christ there is now no condemnation. And so they go from, from having a servile fear before God and running to Him for, for forgiveness and, and, and for pardon to standing before Him knowing that they have an advocate. And so the day of judgment for the Christian is not a day that we tremble at. It's a day that we welcome because everyone who rejects the name of Jesus will be put to open shame in that day. Jesus will be vindicated. The Gospel will be so clear before humanity. But if you live in unbelief today, you place yourself under the curse of God and all of His promised punishments. Friends, I hope that as I've tried to unpackage unbelief, and I'm sure at some level, woof, that was a lot, and it was. I just want you to see this one reality in our day and age. That there is no sin that so totally destroys and yet is so widely accepted as this one sin of unbelief. There is no sin that so mutilates the glory that God has placed upon humanity. When we come to see unbelief for what it really is, then we start to grow in wisdom. Because when we see... Do you remember what, what the, the king here does in Daniel chapter 5 after, after God pronounces sentence upon him? Do you remember what happens? He goes out and lives like an animal. That's humanity. God has pronounced His judgment and humanity apart from the Gospel will not live in the graces of Christ but will live as mere beast uh, animals of the field. And so what we see when we see the sin of, of unbelief as so inhumane and, and so heinous, we see humanity for what He really is. That there is no limit to the abyss. They... Humanity apart from Christ dishonors God, is at odds with the universe, is spiritually blinded, and is under a curse. And yet they go on living as if they were never going to die, as if there was never going to be a time of punishment for all that they perpetrate on the earth. There, this week, I'm sure many of you saw the, the rocket attacks from Hamas against the nation of Israel. Think about the reality. Friends, we, we live insulated from the, the realities of war. I think in such a way often that we live in ingratitude and foolishness. But last week there was a family, I'm sure, getting up, going about their day, living life, and were torn to pieces, or a child was ripped away from them, or all of the horrors of what's going on over there. Why? Because a group of people are living in unbelief and willful rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they act like fools. I don't care how much diplomacy, and we should engage in diplomacy, but diplomacy will not fix the political issues of our world. Only the Gospel of Christ will do that. 
Friends, the reality of, of the sin of unbelief turning humans into animals is why you've heard me speak of worldly Christianity so many times as such a conundrum. Because it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense that at one time we lived in unbelief. Every one of us in this room lived in unbelief. But Lewis, God was gracious to you and I. He opened our blinded eyes. He revealed, Dallas, to you and I the the mercies of Christ. He showed us our sin and He regenerated our heart that we would turn in repentance and faith. Not in our own volition, but by His grace. And now we run to Christ and slowly we're being sanctified. We're, 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 we're being molded, changed in, from one image to the next, from one glory to the next, into the image of Christ. And worldly Christianity flips all of that on its head and says, well, I'll have Jesus, but I'm going to go back and live like an animal. I'm going to go back and live in the world. It's why James wrote in chapter 4, of his letter, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Friends, the world laughs, it scoffs, it, it today, it celebrates. Friends, the, 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 the fingerprints of Satan upon our society is that one of the most high-handed offenses against God, the destruction of marriage into sodomy and, and affirming people to use their bodies in unnatural way is celebrated under the banner of pride. Do you not see the spiritual blindness of rejecting the Gospel of God in very practical terms? And here's the reality. We dare not go into this community in our own form of pride thinking we are better than they because apart from the graces of Almighty God, we would stand under a foolish banner as well and once well did. And so what that brings us to is this reality. And this is where I've been longing to get the entire sermon. As I was writing this, I thought, "Woo! this is going to be like a flamethrower. The truth often is. But here's the joy this morning. That we can come before God knowing again that if we believe in the biblical Christ in any measure, it is by grace alone that that is a reality. And that we have honored God in our hearts by grace. We have reconciled with our Creator. We have had our eyes opened. We are no longer spiritually blinded. And there is now before the bar of God no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. And that, my friends, is a work purely of God, not of man. We value the Gospel. Our sin has been atoned for. Only Christ's works speak for us. And now we have been united with Christ. And as Paul reminds us, we have been seated with Him at this very moment in heavenly places. Now we'll struggle in this life with residual unbelief. But there will come a day, beloved, when our faith will be made sight and we will no longer even remember. Can you imagine this day? Chad, there's going to be a day when we don't even remember what unbelief is like. 
with the doubts of this world, Bill, all of the theological uncertainties. And some people ask, why are there denominations? Well, because there's convictions. Well, why don't you all have the same convictions? Because we have imperfect minds. One day that will all be reconciled. That's going to be a good day. Uh, unbelief is eradicated in the final glory of Christ. And not one of us are going to stand there in glory and say, Woo! I'm glad I brought belief to this party. That's not going to be the answer. We will marvel at the reality that God took us from being mere brute beasts and He made us sons and daughters. He called us into marvelous light. And I think that is what Paul is aiming at when he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? And so then later we go on in the joy that, that Paul talks about, heralding the joy of this gospel that alone has the power to save. When he writes, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is only in Christ that our labor is not in vain. We rejoice, beloved, today, knowing that God and God alone gives us the joy of watching sinners who were once far off, who once lived in unbelief, we watch them come home in repentance and faith. That is our joy. And friends, we must marvel if we find in ourselves one quality in any measure, this one quality in any measure in our life, and that is belief on the Christ who has taken our sins away. If you come here this morning not to celebrate a moral example, and boy, that liberalized version of Jesus has totally decimated the church. All we need is a good moral example and then we'll live up to the standard of Jesus. I've not met one person that's even come close to the Jesus I know. And I have a lot of really great friends, but they're scoundrels, every one of them. If you come this morning, and you come to worship, Cam, because you know that you're a sinner and you're in need of pardon, and you know that the God of all the universe created this earth so that He could send His only Son in taking on human flesh to die on a cross to atone for your sin, glory in God, my brother. Because that is something that is not normative this side of the fall. What a joy it is to know Him and rejoice in Him. And that's why Paul, excuse me, and I'll conclude with this, emphatically, and some are going to say, how does all of that work? It works in the decrees of God. God is the one who is completing His redemptive plan. There would not be a scintilla, Dion, 
There wouldn't be a scintilla of belief this morning on the face of the earth were it not for the grace of God. The man that stands behind this pulpit, I promise you, would be a miserable wreck. Not a good guy. Apart from the grace of God in sending belief into his heart. I wouldn't have a family. Everything that I have that is an earthly joy is an outworking of the graciousness of God in the person of Christ. And all of those earthly things could be taken away and you know what I would still have, Dallas? I would still have Jesus. So Paul here concluding for us, as regards to the Gospel, Romans chapter 11, they are, the enemies for, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts, are the, calling of, uh, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order by the mercy shown to you they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Would you pray with me, beloved? Father, we come this morning marveling at the reality of belief that we find in our own hearts this morning. Knowing that that belief has only been placed there by Your sovereign hand. And so we worship You in spirit and in truth at that reality. Father, we confess before You that we are foolish, given to our own fleshly lusts and passions apart from Your graces. We, we are wretches, the lot of us, apart from Your Gospel and Your grace. And so we come this morning so thankful that You've saved us. Father, we come before You this morning grieving over our society and our community and our neighbors and those who are gathered with us this morning that are still living a life of unbelief. And we ask, Father, that You would do the miracle that only You can do in regenerating their hearts, showing them the goodness of Christ and the Gospel, that You sent Your only begotten Son into the world, that whoever believes on Him would not perish but have eternal life. And Father, I pray that this truth would, would lodge in their heart that every step that they take, Every movement they make apart from believing in You brings them one step closer to the sentence being carried out of the condemnation that already abides upon them. And I pray, Father, that that would push them into Your arms. I pray, Father, that that would cause them to turn in repentance and faith by Your grace and kindness alone. I pray, Father, for the salvation of many. I pray, Father, this morning for those of us again that are in Christ that we would rejoice in You truly being our Heavenly Father, having given Your only begotten Son, that we can come here this morning and worship You not through our works, not through our erudition and understanding, not through our own merits, but only on the merits of Christ. Might we come through the veil of His blood this morning to give You praise that is due Your name. 